Welcome to Soccer Morning on Backheel.com. Here's your host, Jason Davis. Good morning, everybody. Happy Thursday. Welcome into Soccer Morning, brought to you by WorldSoccerTalk.com. Excited to have you here for another excellent program talking about the world of soccer or football or calcio or whatever you want to call it. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. It does not matter what you call the sport as long as you love the sport, as long as you're looking for knowledge. Here, we're, we're going to give you some knowledge. Not from me. Not really the font of knowledge that you should be looking to. I'm just the guy who brings the fonts of, fonts of knowledge on the show and lets them talk. And on this program today, Andres Cordero from BN Sport will join us. He is a host and a commentator there. Talk a little Champions League with Andres. Maybe talk uh, some Spanish football, the state of La Liga. And I think, I think, and, and producer Trevor is extremely excited about this news, that the Bundesliga is coming to be in sport next season. And considering the, the, how good that league is and how little of it we get to see in the United States, that's good news. A re, it's Bundesliga on a real TV channel. That's cause for celebration, I think. Maybe we'll dent the Premier League's hold on the American f- imagination. Probably not. Probably not. It's that whole English language thing. It's, it's, a, it's a thing. Also on this program, and you heard me talk about him yesterday, he's going to come on. He's going to present his point of view. I will try to stay out of the way as much as possible. Stefan Szymanski, co-author of Soccernomics. We'll talk about his interview at Hudson River Blue, in which, in which he outlined that Major League Soccer will always be Minor League Soccer until they open up the purse strings and begin to compete with European teams in terms of spending power which, again, probably will never happen. That should be an interesting conversation. I'm not going to argue with... Ste- I, I imagine that people think I'm going to av- argue with Stefan Szymanski. I may disagree on some level with some of the things he'll say, but I'm sure he'll have uh, good counterpoints. He is, a, he is a professor of economics at the University of Michigan. I'm just a guy sitting in front of a microphone. So that should be a good conversation. Let's do the headlines this morning. If you have been paying attention to the Euro, uh, UEFA Champions League, maybe you were surprised to see what happened to Arsenal yesterday at the Emirates. Monaco, fourth place, sixth place team. Where, where are they in, in Liga? Fourth place in Liga. A team that advanced into the round of 16 on the back of four total goals scored in the group stage. Took apart Arsenal. 3-1 to one, final score. Monaco goes back to France with an almost insaleable lead. Inassailable? Unassailable. That's what I meant to say. Unassailable lead in that Champions League tie. Arsenal's defending was frankly suicidal. And that, that came out in the aftermath. Arsene Wenger talking about it. Arsene, why didn't you fix it? The third goal, man. That third goal was a killer. Oxlade-Chamberlain just gets his, gets his pocket picked. In midfield, gives up a goal. Yeah, Dimitar Berbatov starring for Monaco. Dimitar Berbatov. Yeah, that, that third goal, fantastic. Fantastic goal. Just kissing the far post and in. I thought, thought the goalkeeper could have done better on that, uh, on that particular situation, but there it is. Three to one, Arsenal falls. Meanwhile, Bayer Leverkusen takes a one goal lead, one nothing over Atletico Madrid. I think that's good enough. For Madrid, to be honest with you, we'll talk to Andres Cordero about this. But they go back now to the Calderon with an opportunity to advance again in the Champions League. Atletico's fantastic runner, Diego Simeone, I, I don't know, still has a chance here. 
They made the Champions League final last year. They win La Liga. They're in third in La Liga this year, and it doesn't look like they're going to be able to chase down the, the two dominant teams in Spain. But certainly they have the Champions League to play for. Speaking of UEFA, UEFA has decided that they're going to back the notion of a December 23rd World Cup final in 2022. Now, we've already discussed how UEFA's not too... Well, UEFA, Michelle Platini, is one thing. The clubs of, of UEFA are a different thing. The organization backing the World Cup's uh, final happening on December 23rd, maybe not so surprising. FIFA has also come out and said the clubs aren't going to get any, co- any compensation for the World Cup happening smack dab in the middle of their season. The fallout from this is far from over. I, I think we've... We've settled on what's going to happen. Essentially, eventually, we're going to get to a point where we're just going to have to accept the World Cup's going to happen in November and December in 2022. It's going to be in Qatar. And we're going to just have to, to suck it up here. And we will, at this, in the, here at Soccer Morning, we'll continue to bang the drum. That is the deplorable condition of uh, conditions that migrant workers are forced to labor under in Qatar. But the rest of the world seems to just have uh, accepted that this is going to happen. There may be a lot of grousing. There may be some grumbling. CONCACAF is on board. Jeffrey Webb, okay. UEFA's on board. You know Asia's on board. This isn't going anywhere. Oh, I'm being told that Fox gets the Bundesliga rights. Uh, okay, whatever. Uh, we're going to go down that road later. I mean, I, Apparently I misspoke. We'll get that all fixed out, uh, fixed up. Excuse me. Here's interesting news that I saw this morning. Leeds, Leeds United, one of the biggest clubs in England, formerly, until everything went south, and they went to administration. They dropped down several divisions and have been struggling to get back to the top since. Could be purchased by Russell Crowe. Is this real? It's this is like when when I, I don't know. Rihanna was in was interested in TUS USA. Like I feel like this is complete nonsense. How much how much truth is there to the fact that Russell Crowe now okay now I'm pulling up a story here. Leeds chairman insists club is not for sale after the Russell Crowe news. Now we know Russell Crowe's a, fan, a, a giant sportsman. He loves his sports. He loves his his rugby in Australia, and apparently he loves his football. But President Massimo Salino. Having sold his uh, stake to Elo, Eleonora Sport in order to independently appeal his football league disqualification. Remember, they have an owner who, dis- who was disqualified by the football league. Didn't pass the fit and proper persons test, and everybody passes that test. Apparently, the club's not for sale. I don't know. The club is not for sale, nor do the Salino family wish to sell, nor have we received any approaches contrary to reports in the press today. They had to address the Russell Crowe link. I enjoyed that. IFAB, the International FA Board, the people who make up the laws of the game, will meet to discuss video replay. Now, I'm a little unclear on the details of this. I doubt it's going to go anywhere, but I believe the, the replay has been tested in cup cup competitions or they're looking for approval to use it in cup competitions in Holland. Something to consider. I don't know about video replay. I like the element of human error in the game. Adds drama, adds intrigue, something we get to talk about after the fact, even if your team gets screwed. FIFA, speaking of the cutter in 2022, has announced that the 2021 Confederations Cup will not be played in that country 
They'll find somewhere else in Asia to do it. You know why? Because they're not going to move the Confederations Cup out of summer, and it's too damn hot. So they're going to have to find somewhere else to play that tournament. Remember, it, it hasn't always been in the host country a year ahead of the World Cup, but that's been the way of things for a, for a little while now, for a couple of cycles. And that would be the expectation, but apparently we're throwing out that, that out the window because we have to move the World Cup out of summer because Qatar is too damn hot. The CONCACAF Champions League last night, Club America went down to Saprissa and demolished Saprissa 3-0 in the, in the CONCACAF Champions League. A big advantage for Club America. They'll take that back to the Azteca. They'll walk. And they are now, in my mind, and they probably were before this match, but 3 nothing on the road. They are now the outright favorites to win the competition. Until an MLS team can, can legitimately challenge Mexico, I just don't see it happening. Yeah, Copa Live as well last night. A Mexican team doing well in that competition. Atlas beating Atletico Monero on the road. So there you go. There's your headlines. Let's take a break. When we come back, we will grab Andres Cordero from BN Sport. Talk Champions League. Maybe a little La Liga should be a good discussion. Thank you for listening to Soccer Morning, brought to you by WorldSoccerTalk.com. I'm trying. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on Backheel.com with Jason Davis. Here we go, back on Soccer Morning, brought to you by World Soccer Talk. On the phone line with me now, Andres Cordero from BN Sports, uh, broadcaster extraordinaire. I like this, box-to-box broadcaster. That's good, Andres. I appreciate that. Uh, you know what, I think uh, I've been listening to this show for so long. I think first time, long time is an appropriate way to say hello. Oh. Uh, it took us a while to link up, but uh, I'm very glad to... To finally be on, and uh, thanks for the invite. I'm glad. I'm glad to have you. Um, we're certainly going to go into the areas that you uh, you cover for BN Sport, uh, La Liga, Serie A. We'll do that. But you know, top of mind for a lot of people in terms of European football is the Champions League. Obviously, the biggest competition in the world. Yesterday's results, um, one maybe not so surprising, but certainly Arsenal falling to Monaco the way that they did at home, just being picked apart yeah. on the counterattack by by Monaco. How surprised were you of, of how that went down? I was surprised that they put three goals up. I mean, Monaco basically almost uh, doubled up their uh, Champions League goal tally. They've got seven goals now from seven different goal scorers this season. And I think Monaco has been underrated um, by a lot of people. And this is not going to be a very popular stance, uh, given it's, it's mostly a U.S. audience. But I think the Premier League is such a, such a juggernaut in popularity that so much of the English language reaction is borderline disrespectful to the rest of a lot of European teams. Uh, how many times did we hear that Monaco aren't very good, which is absolute nonsense. And every club left uh, in this competition at this stage is quality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think if Monaco's manager were named Jose Mourinho instead of uh, Leonardo Jardim, the headlines would be about Monaco's masterful sure. performance at the Emirates rather than, you know, is Arsene Wenger done at Arsenal or what went wrong with Arsenal and all the negativity that surrounds that. Yeah. I think stated bluntly, the, the third-place team in England were outplayed at home by the second-place team in France. Uh, Monaco had conceded one goal in the entirety of the group stage. Uh, they'd only conceded one goal in Ligue 1 since the end of November. Uh, they'd managed to shut out teams like 
Lyon, who have been fantastic, especially in attack. Uh, Bordeaux have been very good. Marcelo Bielsa's Marseille were uh, held scoreless by this Monaco team. Bayer Leverkusen, who so dominated Atletico Madrid yesterday, were held scoreless by this Monaco team. So I'm not surprised that uh, they were able to defend as well as they did against Arsenal. Um, I am a little bit surprised they were able to put three goals uh, past them on the counter at the Emirates. Um, and it could have been worse, to be honest. Uh, I think Monaco were so brutally efficient, and uh, and they didn't really give Arsenal a chance to do what they would be most dangerous at, which is they're so good with the ball. Um, uh, Monaco, when they're in their own half, they don't make those mistakes to give you the counterattacks on a short pitch, and I think that kind of limited. Uh, what uh, what Arsenal could do, and especially because Arsenal seemed to have two guys up up top that did zero defending and, and didn't really work to win the ball back in in the attacking half. And that's uh, Ozil and uh, Oliver Giroud. Mm-hmm. It, well, I mean, you, it, these games turn on a couple of moments, and certainly in, in the scoreline is a fair scoreline in the way that again how how relentless and, and efficient Monaco was. But Giroud had his chances, or at least one really guilt-out chance yeah. that he didn't put away. Maybe that changes the game. Certainly Arsenal's goal um, was a fantastic goal that gives them a, gave them a little bit of hope for a while. But then again, as you said, Monaco, a very good team at doing what they do. We were just we, we looked at their results uh, recently, the recent form, and it, it looked like binary code. It was 0-1-1-0-1-0-0-1. And, and to see them put three up like that was the surprise. Yeah, to see them put up, put up three of them. I, I thought Arsenal were much better when, when they brought, um, Theo Walcott on and Ox, um, in the second half. I don't know how much of that has to do with, uh, Monaco just sort of happy with the result, but I mean, they were defending from the get-go, so it's not as if they, uh, changed dramatically, uh, when they went up, uh, 2-0. But like you mentioned, Arsenal had their chances. Uh, you know, Alexis, uh, in the first half just past, mm-hmm. uh, 30 minutes had a really good chance uh, on a ball from Ozil and he kind of rushed it and sent it over the crossbar. Uh, Giroud had at least two really good chances that I can remember. He had the, uh, the, the header on a free kick, yes, um, yes. where he was completely unmarked and, and he headed over. He could not it down. And then another one on that rebound. I don't know if it was Theo Walcott or Alexi Sanchez that shot and it was parried right to Giroud and he could have put it, he could have put it back in. But I think outside of that, he was so disconnected, so disassociated with the rest of the team that I almost had like a, a secondhand existential crisis for him wondering like, what is your purpose here? What are you doing exactly? And maybe the purpose was to put back those kinds of chances. But I, I think the way Arsenal play at times is so aesthetic, it's so pretty, that to have that kind of limited target forward, um, I think, takes away from from what they do. And I thought you saw the improvement when it was uh, Walcott and Ox out there creating better chances and chances from open play rather than just those uh, free kicks. But I think we have to focus a lot of our reaction, our analysis on just how good uh, Monaco mm-hmm. were, especially defensively. I think, you know, Abdenor at the back was brilliant anchoring that back four. Um, Kondogbia, who I loved in his days at Sevilla and is a fantastic player. I thought he was such a good, uh, signing for Monaco, um, was superb in midfield. Him and Fabinho in front of the, the, the back line. It was basically three in front of the back line, but those two in particular, Kondogbia and Fabinho, who are long, lanky, athletic, and seem to have like a gravitational pull on the ball. And just in midfield, they couldn't, they would not allow Arsenal to win the ball back in those short areas. I thought the one guy who, who gets so much praise for, for Arsenal, in that match, the one guy you can pick out was uh, Santi Casorla, who was just absolutely brilliant in uh, central midfield, and he just he produces such matches. He's so much fun to watch. But he seemed to be the only guy who was really in, in, in a really good moment uh, against Monaco. So, I mean, hats off to Monaco for being absolutely brilliant um, on the counter. And for relying on young players, I mean, this is a very different Monaco from the one that uh, everyone envisioned early on when they came back into Ligue 1. They signed uh, Falcao, they signed James Rodriguez. I mean, obviously, both of those players gone. It's a more modest side, now a side that uh, depends more on their youth. And I mean, to that point, they had a 19 year old in Anthony Martial who was plugged from the own youth system 
who was uh, basically their focal point, uh, their their point of reference on the counterattack. And then Joao Moutinho, who was just absolutely stellar as the playmaker in the entire game, but predominantly in the second stanza. And you haven't mentioned Berbatov, and maybe you should, I mean, he had a well-taken goal. Maybe he didn't do a whole lot other than that, but he's so fun to watch because he doesn't look like he's putting yeah. forth any effort. And, and I think what you what you hit on there. I mean, when you, when you think when people think about Monaco, people who don't watch Liga, and I'll be I'll admit that I don't get a chance to watch Liga very often. Uh, Andres, yep. pe- people automatically go to well, they sold Falcao, they sold James Rodriguez. How can they possibly be? on this level, on Arsenal's level, and maybe that's a bias towards the Premier League, but it's also a a function of the turmoil that Monaco's gone through over the last couple of years. And then more recently, actually, Lucas Ocampos was a very talented young Argentine player uh, was sent on loan to Marseille. I mean, who are a direct competitor. <laughs> Marcelo Bielsa's Marseille at the top of the table uh, at the moment, and he was another guy who, who was very good. I mean, uh, Yannick Ferreira Carrasco, another good young player who didn't start this one. He came off the bench. He's the one who replaced Berbatov and uh, scored the, the third goal uh, very late on. But it's, it's disappointing in so many levels for Arsenal because, you know, even when they pulled that goal back uh, in stoppage time, you think, all right, well, 2-1, that's manageable going in the Stade We know that Monaco don't concede a lot of goals, but, you know, it's just a one-goal deficit, uh, and, and, and that's something that they can work with. But then another sort of overcommitment in midfield springs that counterattack, and uh, Yannick Ferreira Carrasco with a brilliant finish. I mean, he had two really good chances after coming on for Berbatov in the second tucked away in the 94th minute on that pass from Bernardo. Now, I thought uh, Arsenal were careless at times defending the midfield. I thought the second goal was the best example of that. When you saw Per Mertesacker sort of overcommit when he didn't have to, when he had some help, um, maybe he thought he couldn't stay with uh, Anthony Martial on that counter. Um, but that was such a huge blunder to go down 2-0. And they gave a lot of space away, and, and Monaco took advantage brilliantly. I thought yeah. uh, they were so good. And, and it was the, the thing that Monaco did well, which is to not get the ball away in dangerous places, it's something that Arsenal did poorly. And in that 94th minute goal, it was, um, Ox was maybe trying to do a little bit too much. He got dispossessed, uh, near the halfway line. And then Monaco, caught a, uh, sorry, Arsenal caught a little bit too far forward. Bernardo Silva with an excellent ball for Carrasco. Perfect finish. And now three away goals. It's just, uh, it, it's more than I think even Monaco could have, uh, envisioned. But as I said at the beginning, I think change the, the name of the Portuguese manager from, uh, Jardim to Mourinho. And we're all talking about what a masterful performance Monaco did rather than, uh, what a poor, outing Arsenal has. Yeah, I think it may be the same thing if you changed it to Diego Simeone. And and let's go over to yeah. what happened with Atleti yesterday against Bayer Leverkusen. Again, um, you know, the the scoreline is 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 manageable for for Atleti. Uh, you mentioned maybe that that Bayer Leverkusen uh had control of that match throughout, but they can't be happy with one goal going back to Vincente Calderon. No, the scoreline is maybe the one positive thing for, for Atleti, and that's considering they lost 1-0. Um, this was actually, of all of the games going on, and there were some brilliant ones this weekend, obviously, with uh, the, the Juve game, the uh, Barcelona City game, Chelsea PSG, there were some massive games. The one that I was most excited about, believe it or not, was Bayer Leverkusen, Atletico Madrid. And that's not me trying to hipster out. It's just that, for me, Roger Schmidt and Diego Simeone are, along with Klopp and Guardiola, sort of the rock star managers of more modern soccer. They're just so good. They have such, you know, fresh ideas, such a, uh, a breath of fresh air from, from those guys. And this, this particular matchup was so exciting because it was always going to be about intensity. It was going to be about anticipation. It was two teams that had more or less the same idea. So there wasn't going to be that contrast of style. You knew exactly how both teams were going to play, and one was going to be more successful at it than the other. And in this case, uh, absolutely by our Leverkusen. I think Atleti were... Really revved up. Um, Diego Simeone does such a good job of getting them up for games. Uh, maybe sometimes for big games, getting them a little bit too high up. I thought they were too revved up at times and somewhat thoughtless. 
and so focused on that intensity, knowing, you know, how Roger Smith's buyer played, knowing that they're going to go toe-to-toe with them in that intensity, that they kind of forgot to play a little bit of soccer. And I think in order for Atleti to play their new style, because they are a different team now with uh, Antoine Griezmann, Mandzukic, um, than they were last season when it was uh, Diego Costa up top, um, and basically Raul Garcia getting some chances here and there. But I think for them to be at, at their best in this new version of Simeone's Atleti, they need to have three key players, and that's Adela Turan, Antoine Griezmann, and Koke. Uh, Adela and Griezmann were there, Koke missing with a thigh injury. Um, those are the three guys who really demand the ball for Atletico Madrid and, and allow them to play it in midfield. They, they developed, I think, an unwarranted reputation for being a team that just boots the ball up the pitch um, last season. I, I didn't think they were quite that direct. I thought at times they could play. This season they play even more. But uh, Koke missing again yesterday, I think the common thread between that and the Celta loss, the last time they were away from home, they lost right. 2-0 to Celta, and it was a very similar game in which the intensity didn't look quite right. Uh, I think the common thread there is uh, the absence of Koken. They're not quite as deep as some of the other teams, um, and they didn't connect well in midfield. I don't think they strung passes together uh, very well until very late on when Leverkusen kind of sat deep. I think, uh, as I mentioned for Atleti, the best thing was the result, that it is 1-0. They were outplayed. They lost. But uh, but a 1-0 deficit at the Vicente Calderon is very far from insurmountable. You, you mentioned that the, the, the Atleti just doesn't have the same kind of depth as, as maybe some of the other teams in this competition. That's that's They have a smaller margin of error, certainly. They have to play at their best more often than anybody else to get where they have where they've gotten. I mean, to get to a Champions League final, to win La Liga the way that they did last year. And you mentioned the loss to Celta. And, and I would get to... To that and La Liga and the state of their, the, the club in La Liga falling off the pace just a little bit now seven points back of Real Madrid is the dream of a, of a back-to-back title is that over for them or do you imagine it's it's going to be Champions League focused from here on out maybe you know obviously maintaining their place in La Liga so they can go back to that competition but they certainly have a they would seem to have a better chance of winning cha- the Champions League than they do of La Liga. So I thought that was the case last year as well right up until the final uh, game of the season. Remember they won the the Spanish title last year at the Camp Nou on the final day of the season, needing to get a result against Barcelona in order to win it. It was, it was a virtual final for the first time in, in ages in La Liga that you get that kind of excitement on the very last day. I think 2007 was the last time when uh, Barcelona, Real Madrid, and Sevilla all had a chance to win the La Liga title. And so uh, this year, I think it's still a little bit too early to write um, Atletico off, but we're not too far away from being able to answer the question you just asked me with a certain degree of accuracy. Um, they've got a really rough road ahead uh, for Atletico Madrid. They're going to be at Sevilla um, in their next match on Sunday. The following Sunday, they're home against Valencia. Sevilla and Valencia have been brilliant this season. Sevilla, Sanchez, Kiswan, it's such a difficult venue to play at. Valencia are tough no matter where they're playing. Uh, those are their next two La Liga games. And then after that, they visit Espanyol, who have played really well, and they're deep into the Copa del Rey this season. Um, and then after that, the, the return leg against uh, Bayer Leverkusen. So they have four back-to-back-to-back-to-back very difficult games um, they're really going to test Simeone's men. And I think that'll give us a better picture of whether or not they're going to be able to hang with Barcelona and Real Madrid. Because as good as Atleti were last season, I mean, the previous two campaigns, we'd seen Barcelona and Real Madrid put up 100 points. I mean, 14 yeah. dropped points all season long yeah. is just absolutely ridiculous. And granted, I mean, we can't make that the standard. It's more the exception than the standard. But you can argue that last year it was as much about Atleti being very good as Barcelona and Real Madrid not being quite as good as they were the year before that. This season, Barcelona Madrid looks absolutely stunning. Uh, I know that there's this weird media cycle of crises surrounding both teams, and it's almost an application to remind you which of the two Spanish giants is in crisis which week, which I think is absolute <laughs> nonsense. Uh, but if those teams stay as good as they have been, it's going to be very difficult for Atletico because they're just not as deep. And you know what? They, 
there, we can't make the mistake of thinking, well, Atletico are Spanish champions and uh, European runners-up, and so they have to be held to the same standard as Barcelona and Real Madrid. I mean, they do it basically with a third of the payroll that those two giants do, and they do it very well, and I think Simeone deserves a lot of credit for that. Well, let's, let's go back up to the top then. Let's talk Barcelona and Real Madrid. You mean that, that going out to a casino and, and, and Ronaldo's uh, birthday party, those don't, those don't constitute cri- – uh, no, look, as you said – the, both teams have played brilliantly uh, for the most part this season, and, and but there are there are tiny little dips here and there, and it's not that it's not that they're poor or they're they're in crisis, but they've they've dropped just enough points to 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 maybe reveal not a crack or here or there. I mean, certainly, they're they're two of the best clubs in the world, two of the best teams in the world, two of the best rosters in the world. Period. End of story. But but you do wonder every now and then if if these things are going to snowball. Is that are they capable of of navigating this? And again, uh, you know, Barcelona nearly chasing down Real Madrid at this point in the season, but then drop some points and now find themselves four yeah. points back. Well, I mean, think of it this way: for for Real Madrid, they're not very far away from that uh, twenty-two game win streak, which is the longest ever by any European team. Uh, they fell just short of uh, Curitiba's all-time record um, for for consecutive wins, and that was you know just about a month ago or just a little over a month ago. They had a bit of a dip where I thought maybe emotionally, if not physically, they might have peaked a little early with the uh, FIFA Club World Cup, which was the one title that had eluded um, that club for, for so many years because they'd not won uh, the Champions League in this uh, uh, champ- uh, in this world FIFA Club World Cup uh, era. But uh, they got that. I thought maybe it, there was a, a sense within the squad there that like, oh, we, we've, we've achieved something great and we can kind of relax. And they were, even if it was subconscious, there was a bit of a relaxation about them. But they're back to playing wonderful football now. And I think when they have those four guys... Uh, in the middle, Luka Modric is coming back for Real Madrid as well, which I think is going to give uh, Ancelotti such a brilliant problem to have in midfield because I think Modric is part of their best eleven. Um, I think we've got Modric and Kroos in the center of that uh, midfield four with Isco, who has been, I think, inarguably the best Spanish player uh, this season, and uh, James Rodriguez on the other side. I mean, that's such a deadly uh, midfield uh, force, on, and they're so good with the ball, which is different from last year, mm-hmm. where they were a team that sort of. Gave you the ball and we're happy to counterattack. Very similar at times to Atletico Madrid. I think this year they want to have the ball. They want to have possession. Um, so I think the best maybe, not, not yet to come because that 22 game win streak was so good for, for Real Madrid, but I think they can play at that level again this season for a very prolonged period of time. And in Barcelona's case, this idea of these like perpetual cycles of crises. I mean, they went on an eight game winning run before being held by Hidalgo in a score to And it was such a bizarre result because Hidalgo, you know, I don't want to sound disrespectful, but such a non-entity at times. I mean, here's a club that doesn't even have a Twitter handle. And uh, they lose, uh, or they draw 0-0 against Hitafe. Then they go on an 11-game win streak, which ties Pep Guardiola's best mark with uh, Barcelona. Uh, and Lucha, Lucha Enrique gets absolutely no credit for it. They drop points uh, against the good Malaga that played very well, and all of a sudden they're back into a sort of a crisis mode. I think these things are kind of blown out of proportion because they are such massive clubs with yeah. such big budgets that we expect a 100-point season, and we've turned what was the exception into the standard and the expectation. And I, I think it's not Barca or Madrid that are, that are wrong in this case. I think it's our expectation that they need to win every game three now. Yeah, it's, it's a matter of uh, a paling in comparison to previous eras. on Not paling, but certainly not being quite as... I don't know, uh, attractive, sexy, dominant in some cases. I'll tell you what, La Liga has become so much more competitive these last two seasons with the emergence of, you know, Villarreal doing as well as they have, Sevilla doing as well as they have, Valencia have been absolutely brilliant now that they've got that Peter Lim money coming in and that wonderful Mestalla home uh, field advantage. If you're ever in Spain, by the way, and you go to any stadium, I would recommend going to Valencia's Mestalla. I mean, it's, it's built like 
a straight slope. I mean, all of the fans are right on the massive stadium, over 50,000 fit in there, and all of the fans are right on top. And for so long, they've been a sleeping giant that they kind of, you know, weren't quite to their standard when, you know, they won the, the La Liga title and the Rafa Benitez and all those years. But now they're so good. So Sevilla, Valencia, Villarreal, these are teams that, that take some points away from, from Barcelona, from Madrid, that make La Liga more competitive. And, and that I think you'll see will make a splash uh, in Europe for the next five, six years. Yeah, hey, it's good to have a competitive La Liga. I wish we had some time to talk Serie A, Andres. I, I don't. I got to run. Everybody follow Andres on Twitter. It's Dre Cordero. And uh, thank you very much for your time, Andres. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. And I just want to say thanks to Trevor as well. It was a fantastic job. I don't think producers get enough credit. And uh, thanks to him for reaching out. And uh, absolute pleasure to be on. Man, I, now I have to fix this. His ego's going to get all big. No, no. <laughs> Appreciate the time, Andres. We'll take a break. We come back. Stefan Zemanski, co-author of Soccernomics, will join us to talk a little MLS and its future. Don't go anywhere. Soccer Morning, WorldSoccerTalk.com. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on Backheel.com with Jason Davis. Here we go, back on Soccer Morning, brought to you by WorldSoccerTalk.com. On the phone line with me now, professor of economics at the University of Michigan, co-author of Soccernomics, which I'm sure you've heard of and or read, Mr. Stefan Zemanski. How are you, sir? Dr. Zemanski. I'm very good. Uh, great pleasure to be on your show. I- I'm not sure I've ever had a, a, a doctor on the show. Do I, should I address you as Dr. Zemanski? Uh, no, that would, that's not a good idea. Stefan would be much better, actually. All right, that, that's good. I, I, I prefer the, the, the casual and the familiar. Stefan, um, the reason... Don't hate you, all right? No, I certainly won't do that. I know, and that's, uh, that's an American thing nobody likes. Um, <laughs> Stefan, uh, the reason to have you on the show today, talk a little MLS and, and the future of this league. You have a, a very interesting interview over at Hudson River Blue, which is the uh, SB Nation blog for NYCFC. Um, we have, uh, you know, we talk a lot of MLS on this program. In addition to the rest of the world, I, I constantly try to put MLS in the correct context when it comes to world football. We know this is a a young league, a league that operates in a very different manner than than most of uh, of the world. And you've got some some I wouldn't call them harsh words. I, I would I would certainly say that you have some uh, very strong opinions on what it would take for MLS to reach the level that they claim they want to reach. Uh, just for for um, introduction's sake, could you outline any issues you see with the notion of MLS becoming a major or or top league in say ten, twelve, fifteen years? Yeah. So so one of the things about this is, I mean, again, um, the this argument can become uh, a little emotional sometimes, and <laughs> yes. um, if if people you know people love their local product, you know, and I I don't have a problem with that. Soccer fans across the world love their local team, their local league, and and that and I, I don't want to be disrespectful to that at all. What I'm really talking about is more the economics of, of the global market in soccer and saying where MLS stands in the global pecking order. And it seems to me it's it, it's 
you know, the, the product of my research, which has been going on for a quarter of a century, is, and you might say, why did it take you 25 years to figure this out? But basically, um, the, in, the, in the world soccer market, basically, the, the standing of the league goes with the amount of money you're prepared to spend on players. And, you know, and I think a lot of fans would say, well, that's kind of motherhood and apple pie. And, and all I'm really, all I do in my research is really to show that that, that that is true, that there's data out there that can actually support that and can overcome some of the standards objections that people make to that sort of argument. And the problem with Major League Soccer is that in a world where they are spending something like $5 million per team on player salaries, that puts in the world pecking order puts uh, MLS somewhere around number 30. Mm. And what it would have to do to become a major league, and I would say, you know, we could, you know, we could argue about this again, but I would say the major leagues in world soccer are probably uh, La Liga in Spain, the Premier League in England, the Bundesliga in Germany, and Serie A in Italy. We could argue back and forth about that. But those leagues are spending more than uh, 20 times as much as that on player salaries. And that's the gap that you have to bridge in order to reach that level and standing in world soccer. And I don't see how the current structure of MLS is going to get there. And that, that's probably something we're going to talk about. But um, I don't think anybody, most people I speak to, it, who, who even if they love MLS, they're not claiming that MLS is at that level at the moment. The, the argument is that MLS will one day reach that level, and I don't see how that's going to happen under the present structure. No, I certainly can, um, can, can agree with you that, that the way that the league operates now limits growth on that level. Now, again, sort of in the, in the context uh, of the game, the leagues that you identified, all of them, European-based. It's the you know it's the ancestral home of the sport. It's where the game is is most popular. Um, in those places, you can you know obviously you know you have the domestic leagues and and clubs like Manchester City spending a lot of money to win that the the Premier League and the like. But there, there's also a um, the the fact that these te- these leagues often play against each other. Top teams play against each other in the Champions League. There's really no opportunity for MLS to do that short of the Club World Cup, and, and we know how most people view that tournament right now, to directly compare themselves. And Do you think that MLS is maybe hiding behind the notion that they can be insulated from directly competing with the Premier League teams and the La Liga teams and, and, and present themselves as maybe more, uh, more advanced than they are in a shorter timeline than, than you would uh, allow for? Well, actually, that's a very interesting question. Whether whether they would deliberately hide for that. If you said if you said to MLS, you know, you can put one team into the Champions League every year, uh, if UEFA would offer them that opportunity, I think uh, MLS would bite their hand off. I think they'd say yes. I think that would then sort of illustrate some of the problems uh, uh, in terms of the progress that the MLS teams would make. Um, but I, I, so I'm not sure that they're hiding from it. I think it's just the nature of geography that it's hard to do. I mean, I think one thing, you know, um, I think if I was MLS, I would do more to build links with Brazil and Argentina. I mean, one of the things, as you say, I I talk a lot about Europe um, and historically I've talked a lot about England, but it is not really out of, you know, obviously I'm from the UK and, you know, a European. So 
uh, a lot of people accuse me of parochialism, but the point is that that's where I can find the data. I can find numbers to back these things up. Mm. Now, I think that, for example, the leagues in Argentina and Brazil are of ex- also of an extremely high standard, um, which would um, bear comparison with the best leagues in Europe. Um, I just don't have the financial data that, that, that sure. to actually quantify the relationship. But as I say, if I were MLS, I would try to build links with those leagues and, and build up a, 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 a truly American standard of competition, um, which would then, which I think would actually help um, the standard of soccer in, in, in the U.S. over the long term. Well, well. Bo- both of the leagues that you mentioned, Argentina and Brazil, both of the financial models there are, are completely messed up and then they have a lot of issues in terms of clubs being able to pay players and the like. And I think that what that speaks to and I don't know that at any point in your interview at Hudson River Blue or any of your other work that you've indicted MLS for their business model when it comes to just a way to do business. It's simply the argument that they could one day be one of the best leagues in the world and that this being the handcuffs that will keep them from getting there. So I guess what I'm, what I'm getting to is can MLS, can MLS be, should they be focusing on simply consolidating the success that they've had now uh, do these grandiose um, statements about being one of the top leagues, does that actually benefit them in any way from your perspective without the visible sign of spending lots and lots more money to get there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think in soccer, I mean, um, I mean, one of the things about this one thing about competitive sports, I mean, talk is uh, talk is cheap, right? I mean, the, the point is, millions of us watch these things on screens, and we're able to make fairly reliable assessments, and, and we vote with our feet. I mean, it's not that I mean, the problem for MLS is that almost I mean, they, you know, it's doing great at the turnstiles, people are going to watch this uh, as a live event, and it's very successful. It's one of the most, you know, what, it's now the, in the top 10 in terms globally in terms of attendance. So that's not it's not the problem that you can't get people interested on a local level and build that local support. Um, but the problem is Americans are not prepared to watch this on TV. And not only are they not watching this on TV, they seem increasingly to be watching other foreign leagues on yeah. TV. So the, um, the Liga MX and, and uh, uh, obviously, as you were talking earlier about Real Madrid and Barcelona, they get a lot of viewers, people watching the Champions League and, of course, the EPL on NBC. Again, it's not about one league. It's about Americans saying, you know what? We can see that this isn't particularly high quality stuff, and you know, I, my view is it, that people's reaction is, "Well, we're Americans; we want to see the best. Why? Why wouldn't we want to see that?" Yes, yeah, it's, it's a real problem. That's certainly the, the the argument for why MLS struggles in terms of television ratings that they suffer in comparison to those other leagues. And and here's the unique thing about MLS that I try to to bring up: this is not necessarily an excuse, Stefan, but it's certainly a a an identifier of why MLS is going to struggle in this area. No other league in the world that is of reasonable um, profile has had to compete with other foreign leagues for the viewership of the soccer fans in that country. The Premier League built on the back of the first division, which we know is 150 years old. And the same thing for La Liga and Serie A and the Bundesliga. Very old, very established fan bases, everybody focusing on the domestic while also maybe taking in a foreign league here and there. MLS doesn't have that advantage. They can't, they can't build themselves in a, in a bubble, in a vacuum. How do they overcome that? In, 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 how do they overcome that while maintaining financial stability that ensures the league continues to exist is the problem. 
Well, I, you, you're you're asking there to square the circle, and, and my, I think my point <laughs> is that it just can't be done. Okay. And you know, this argument, this this kind of infant industry argument that that you where you present in economics, that's what what you call the infant industry argument. It's saying, well, you know. Um, and it's used across the world. So developing countries say we need protection for our domestic industry over some period of time from foreign competition because we need to grow the industry and become strong. And if we just give us a few years, we'll get stronger and we'll get better and then we can compete in a world market. And um, although MLS isn't asking for uh, protection from foreign competition, nonetheless, their structure and their analysis of this and, and many people's analysis is based on that industry argument. Now, most economists just reject that argument as saying that's just protectionism all you're okay. really doing is protecting people from the from the winds of competition and you know it just makes you lazy and actually you're you're actually better off being exposed to international competition i think the other thing about this is that um again the idea that mls is now 20 years old you know i mean it's not a baby um 20 year olds are grown up adults and you know heading for maturity moreover uh, again, people often, I find people in America talk as if this is just about competing with, as you say, ancient leagues in Europe that have established their dominance 100 years ago. It's not, you know. Um, there's the, the J League in Japan started at the same time as MLS and is actually uh, also a, a becoming a global competitor. You've got the K League in Korea. You have um, you have the Chinese Premier League. You have the league in um, the the newly started Indian uh, fo uh, football league, which uh, kicked off last season. You have and heaven knows what you have going on in the Gulf, where they are soccer crazy and have just hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars to throw at this. Yeah. The U.S. is is not just facing competition from established nations. It is going to face in the future increasing competition from developing nations. And that's where I see the problem of the idea that, well, just give MLS more time and everything will be fine. Okay. It's just putting your head in the sand. Actually, MLS is running out of time. Actually, its best opportunity was probably 10, 20 years ago when it started. And as time goes by, the opportunities to grow and become uh, significant are, are fading away, I think. Well, you... you you certainly have the issue, and maybe you have an idea of, I mean, if it's just a matter of spending more money, then we have a chicken and egg situation where how do you get the people with the money to be involved in the league if they're not sure um, whether or not there's going to be any viability whatsoever? I mean, that was certainly the case in 1994. Signing up people with money to, to buy into this league was a matter of convincing them that, that Americans would care about soccer, period. Right. So, I mean, I, I think so. So my point, my, I guess my point is that that building a profitable league from scratch in a world of global competition is not going to work. It's not possible. It, 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 the, the model, I mean, MLS is ultimately modeled on the NFL, Major League Baseball, the NBA, which are fantastic business models and brilliant successes based on essentially a monopoly of talent. There is sure. no league of any su substance that can rival those leagues. And in a, in a monopolistic world, that structure works fine. In a, in a world of intense competition, not just competition, really intense competition for talent uh, that is global, where players can pretty much go where they, where they want if they have the ability, 
then that model just doesn't work. So there is no way these guys are going to make money. So then the question is, well, so, 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 what, it, so what do you do then? And I, I go back to the comment you made actually earlier about Brazil and Argentina saying, well, sort of somewhat dismissively, you know, they're, they're, you know it's financial chaos down there. No, you know, they, they, you know it's, all, it's all of a mess. That's actually a description of global soccer. That's not just okay, true in fair. Brazil and, and uh, Argentina. It's true in Italy. It's true in Spain. It's true in France. It's true in, it's true in England. To some extent, it's true in Scotland. Even in Germany, where it's claimed to be financially stable, actually, you look at, you look at the details and under the surface, it's, pretty, it's a pretty big mess. Mm. Soccer has always been this global marketplace of where rich people blow a fortune. Now, again, people present to me the argument, well, Americans, rich Americans just won't do that. And they're not prepared to do that. And, th and that's why it has to be different, because in the United States, this is the world where people have to make money. Well, I, I, then, OK, then you have minor league soccer and you can go on. Sure. You can have minor okay. league soccer for as long as you like. I don't I, I actually think that in the longer term, though, actually, I think you will find wealthy individuals willing to buy themselves a fortune. If you look at what, for example, uh, uh, it's gone on at, you know, you think of the classic examples, Chelsea and Roman Abramovich, Manchester City and uh, Sheikh Mansour, um, Paris Saint-Germain and Qatar Investments, you can see that very, uh, and, uh, and um, I forgot the name of, can't pronounce the name of the Russian guy at, at Monaco with their great win um, the other night. Um, there you see examples of extremely wealthy individuals being prepared to blow a fortune. And there are just literally thousands of examples that you can find from across the road of very rich people, mega rich people, even only slightly rich people being prepared to throw huge sums of money at this in order for, because of the prestige mm -hmm. and the fame that it brings you to, to, to run a, a okay. successful club. So and my point is, I just don't think Americans are that different in the end. I don't think America is that different. And it might be even it might even be foreigners coming to America and blowing their fortunes on doing this. But I think ultimately someone's prepared to do it. And but in order to get there, this is what you're advocating, or at least what you would suggest MLS do in order if they have these grandiose notions of becoming a top league is to to open it up to to uh, to get rid of the the salary caps and the strict single entity uh, restrictions and certainly allow for for parity to go out the window, and and I want to speak specifically to parity, we do have, and, and you mentioned those other leagues, the NBA, the NFL, Major League Baseball, to a lesser extent, they are built on parity. They're built on the notion that anybody, uh, any team can you know catch lightning in a bottle and, and go win a title in any given year. Now that doesn't always play out. We certainly have dynasties and 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 teams that dominate for for large chunks of time, but you would suggest that MLS is is again handcuffing itself by relying on a model that uh, does not allow for for teams to dominate right i mean so so yeah i, I would think again I mean, you're you're really so one of the reasons one of the things that would happen it seems to me if you open that up is you would find some glory hunter somewhere he might be or she might be american or might be uh foreign but somebody is going to come in and say i'm going to blow a fortune and make this into the biggest team in the u.s and that's going to buy me a lot of uh a lot of a lot of notoriety and success um and um by, by the, the the restrictions actually prevent people from doing that now then and as you say um, there is there is this belief in the U.S. that that parity is important. And now, again, 
I, I, I'm an economist, so my, what I do as a, my research is actually to look for patterns in the data to see if it's really true that more balanced contests generate more interest. And uh, I get papers across my day, oh, across my desk most days that have some reference to this. And, um, you know, uh, it, the, the evidence is just, it's extremely mixed. It is not, it is by no means clear cut that actually fans, viewers respond uh, strongly to parity. There, it clearly, there's a difference between saying, if the outcome were known with certainty in advance, would anybody watch? Obviously, if there's that degree of certainty, then actually you, you will, you, people will lose interest. But um, again, um, the, the data shows that even in the U.S., that across many leagues and across different periods of time, um, parity makes very, very little difference to people's interest in uh, and level of following of the sport. But, Stefan, would you believe that that to be the case with a, with a club, um, with a franchise here in the United States, obviously, that is less than 10 years old, that is 10 years old, that is 15 years old, as opposed... To, and maybe this is reverse engineering on my part, and, and, and I will admit to that if, if that's the case. But certainly, you could have, you know, you could have a Sheffield United, you can have a Wigan, you can have a Norwich. That with with a fan with a culturally embedded fan base that it's not going anywhere, and regardless of whether or not the club is at the top level or competing for championships, and certainly promotion and relegation plays a role in this as well. And I'll admit to that. They they will stick by that club. Is it possible that Americans are different, or would you believe that? A brand new club that started in 2007 that eventually sort of settles into a middle tier or a, a lower tier of the league would still be able to generate enough interest. Um, well, so I mean, uh, so so uh, sorry. There's several things there. I mean, what, <laughs> yes, the, I the, the, the fundamental thing you're asking, uh, you know, uh, is the nature of the American sports fan fundamentally different from the nature of the sports fan around and the rest of the globe? So is, and this is kind of, you know, this seems to be the classic American exceptionalism argument, where everybody else is different from us. And, and, and actually, although I have to say, I spent a career teaching economics across the world. I've, I've taught in, um, obviously, in the UK. I've taught in Poland. I've taught in Italy and Spain. I've taught in Singapore and China, in India, you know, I, I've, I, I've taught around the world. And I tell you one thing, everybody tells you when you talk to them about economics, they always tell you, you know, you know, Professor, your models are very interesting, but they don't apply here. So it's not just Americans who think they're exceptional. Everybody thinks well, they're exceptional. Well, you know, um, but I, I really don't believe that the American fan is exceptional in that sense. I think uh, I think they respond to exciting and attractive contests in the same way that, that people do across the world. I think Americans like to see the best play against the best. Um, but again, think about um, I, I, just to give you an example. So so the claim that Americans love parity and uh, and, and that's really important. So, uh, I, as, as you know, I'm at the University of Michigan. We have the big house uh, stadium with 110,000. We filled that stadium for every single game last season. Now, some of those games were, uh, there was some significant degree of parity. And actually, obviously, we, had, we didn't have a great season and, and we were actually beaten a number of times. But some of those games we were playing were against real patches where it was, you know, everybody knew what was the outcome was going to be. We got 110,000 Americans in the stadium watching in a highly unbalanced contest. 
I don't buy this argument that Americans are fundamentally. Well, let, let me clarify. Let me clarify my, my point just a little bit, Stephen. I don't necessarily mean American sports fans because I, I, I tend to agree with you on that. But again, the University of Michigan, the football program is 100 years old, that there is, and there is a cultural element to going to a Michigan football game that goes beyond the competition or what the game is going to look like on the field. I, I'm not sure that, a, that an MLS club that started five years ago has the same sort of leash to do to to be at, you know non-competitive or semi-competitive or not have a chance to win via playoffs or or what or parity well i mean that, that that's an interesting point and and uh you know again it seems to me it harks back to the infant industry argument that okay. somehow we need some kind of period of grace before we face the full uh, you know uh, gales of competition out there in the market and uh, fair enough I, I okay let's let's say that you need you need 5 years to get the league going and get things started before people will, will start to get behind this. Well, I, again, you know, we're coming up to the 20th anniversary of, of MLS. You know, it's been around a long time now. It's not new. It's had time to bed down. So even if what you're saying is true, and I'm skeptical, but it might be true, um, nonetheless, now is the time to, to, I would argue, is to let rip and let competition uh, do its job. I, you know, again, I find it's, it's really strange being being a being a foreigner in the United States and having saying to Americans, you know what, competition is a really good idea. <laughs> <laughs> Normally, we associate yes. that with you people. Yes, yeah, so obviously, the, the 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 joke is that uh, European football is is extremely capitalistic and American sports are socialist, uh, which does not seem to make a whole lot of sense. I think that's oversimplifying a little bit, but the, but certainly there's there's some truth to it. Um, so. You know, here's a question. Oscar's asking a question, and I'm going to rephrase it just a bit, Oscar. He's asking whether or not the way that the league operates now ensures a, a, a steadier level of growth than, say, taking, uh, taking the, the safety net out and, and going to a, a wide-open European-style model, which, again, may allow for a lot more spending and, and the, the, the possibility of becoming major and competing with those leagues for, um, for, for precedence in the world. Uh, but does the the way that they operate now it, it it's conservative does that does do you think that there's a danger of the league folding more of a danger of the, of the league folding if they took away the protections yeah i mean i, I well i so yes i think that's right so i i think i think uh you know uh uh mls can go on as a slow and steady uh, uh business appealing to a niche audience which love it to bits and the rest of America pays very little attention and I think they can go on doing that indefinitely. Actually the owners still say they're not even making money under this system. I mean that that's kind of an interesting uh, uh, question and, and if they're not then then the, even that's not uh, that even this model's not they really working. Toss it out. Toss it out Let's suppose not that they are making some money. But I think the other point is that that uh, you know it, it's it's the point, the the important point about um, modern professional sports as entertainment is that they are TV businesses. Mm. You know, the vast, you know, the majority of leagues of any size, and it doesn't, I don't care what sport you're talking about, is making, you know, fifty to seventy-five percent of their money through broadcast revenue, and that's what makes them successful. That's where the that's where they generate the sponsorship, the merchandising, the profile, and that ultimately even brings in more fans to watch at the game. 
the problem, you know, uh, according to my colleague Todd Jewell, MLS is getting something like 90% of its money from uh, attendance at the stadium and, you know, less than 10% from broadcast money. That's just not a viable modern professional sport. You know, it's not that that's not going to work, you know, short term, long term. It certainly seems like MLS has a ceiling that they will continue to bump up against as long as the TV revenue is not uh, the major driver of growth. And and it seems from what I hear, Stefan, and and this speaks to your point, the owners are loath to cut their ties to their game day revenue because they don't see that TV money coming yet and there's a, a fear it may not a fear it may never come i mean if they're if these are american businessmen who don't want to lose money then they're probably going to be stuck in this middle ground for a long time i, don't, I what i said yesterday when i addressed your your interview was that that doesn't necessarily speak to the to the entertainment value that that individuals can take out of the league but i think you're i think you are, do have a point that mls will always be "Quote unquote minor." I, I take a little emotional issue with that, but "quote unquote minor" as long as they aren't willing to play the game that the rest of the world is already playing. No, I think that's right. And again, like I say, I don't want to be. I'm not trying to be. I know not, some people think I'm being disrespectful. I'm not really trying to be disrespectful of, of MLS fans, uh, but I do think calling something major league when it would rank maybe you know 25 to 30 in the in the in globally is is is. It's something of an abusive language. <laughs> it's, okay, all right. Within again, MLS can't exist in a in a in a bubble um, that the world is always pressing. Uh, the competition you mentioned is always pressing in, but in this country, it's about the best we got. So <laughs> I don't like the name Stefan. I'm on the record with that. Stefan Zemanski, <laughs> uh, co-author of Soccernomics, professor at the University of Michigan. Stefan, I we could do this all day. I appreciate your time very much. Uh, we're going to take a break and uh, and take some phone calls on your interview. Appreciate the time, sir. Thank you very much for having me on. I enjoyed that a lot. Thank you. Let's take a break. We'll open up the phone lines. 347-756-6276. A lot of people with a lot of opinions. Don't go anywhere. Soccer Morning brought to you by World Soccer Talk. It be feeling like the life that I'm living, man, I don't control. Every day I'm in a fight for my soul. Could it be that my medicine's the evidence? Welcome back to Soccer Morning on Backheel.com with Jason Davis. Here we go, back on Soccer Morning on a Thursday, brought to you by World Soccer Talk. Good stuff from uh, Dr. Zemanski there. It, look, it, it is certainly true that MLS plays a different economic game than the rest of the world. And this is why, and, I, and I've been consistent about this, if MLS intends to get to that goal that Don Garber has put out there, Top one of the top leagues in the world by 2022. You have to spend money. That's that's something we, the doctors of Anzig and I can agree on. Six four six. You're on the air. Hey, Jason. It's Raf. Hey, what's going on, Raf? <laughs> Not much. Um, listen, I'm really glad that you had Seven Samansky on uh, discussing the interview that he did with us at Hudson River Blue. Um, ding, we ding, just ding. For two, and uh, you check it out. I'm going to go ahead and do a little bit free, a little bit of earned media advertising for the blog here. But the other thing is. Um, he actually makes a really cool allusion in part two of the interview um, where he discusses uh, the actual NASL. And the point that he makes was that one of the things that actually killed 
the NASL was not so much the overexpansion, but the lack of a broadcast footprint. And in 1983, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, there were just weren't enough television networks. ESPN was in its infancy. It was basically still the the three. Fox wasn't even around, you know, as an actual broadcast network. And so, you know, if you had had ESPN, the ESPN twos, the NBC SNs. The NASL probably might have succeeded because sure. they could have gotten that broadcast footprint in the uh, country and thus gotten the money. No, that's a good point. Uh, it's absolutely excellent point. Raf is uh, man- managing editor over at Hudson River Blue. Definitely go check out uh, both part one with Stefan Zemanski and part two, which is, as he said was posted today. I haven't read that part yet. Uh, Raf, I'm going to have a lot of people calling in, so I got to let you go. But thanks for the phone call. Yeah, not a problem. But it was uh, Sam Dunn that did the interview for us, not me. Uh, so, no, I, I know. Check out I, his writing. That's why I identified you as the editor and not the actual <laughs> interviewee. Yeah, not interviewer. a problem. Great interview. Right, there thanks, you go. Man. Thanks a lot. Raf N- uh, Naboe Rivera. Hey, 786, you're on the air. Hi, Jason. It's uh, Simon Evans in uh, Miami. Ah, Simon Evans uh, in Miami. Simon, a former guest on this show many, many times. How are you, Simon? I'm very well, sir. No, I thought it was a fascinating interview with Stefan, and his interviews were very interesting, too. And I just, I thought, that, I thought the nutshell of it was, to me, the very true point that across the world of football, the people who invest in this game, who are spending millions on salaries, are doing so knowing that they're most likely going to lose money. And And I think if you start to translate that model to the United States, it simply doesn't work. And this is the reason why MLS does have the structure it has, because American businessmen who invest in sport across all the different sports expect a return on their investment and expect a profit. And I don't think soccer is any exceptional in that sense. And so I think that explains why we have a structure in MLS which is based around limiting costs and is based about a gradualist approach and we're, and we're not having massive amount of money spent. And of course it's true that you have to spend more on wages to be more successful. The central part of Stefan's thesis is absolutely true. But I don't see why over the next 10, 15 years, if MLS, it is a big if, if MLS can establish itself as a television product and the next, in eight years' time, ESPN and Fox come in with a much bigger offer and the kind of money that would start being able to attract 26-year-old cacaz instead of 30-year-old cacaz to the league, why MLS couldn't then be among the top 10 leagues in the world. There's I don't a, see any why that can't work. There's also something else here, Simon, and it's the notion, and I'm not saying that MLS is doing this out of any any reformation idea that they're going to fix world football and the economic model, but you could certainly make the argument that the way MLS does it is is smarter and you hear this every now and then when Garber's in London at uh, Soccer X, that, that some of these leagues are interested in the salary cap or some of these, these uh, budget restrictions because they're afraid that their model is going to collapse in on itself or will end up with a super league and then a rack of teams that, that can't compete while there are 10, 12, 20 teams in Europe who are dominating everything else. And at, at that point, fundamentally, world football has, has changed. Absolutely, and, and, and missing from Stefan's analysis, uh, and I'm sure he's aware of it, but it hasn't, it hasn't featured in the article or, or in the interview today, is the fact that in half of Europe, football is dying. I mean, I spent time in Eastern Europe, I was just in Hungary now, and, you know, you, you have a situation there where famous clubs like Ferenc Baras and Uyfest and Honda, Hungarian clubs, are in massive debt, yeah. playing in front of tiny crowds, because they can't compete with this system in Europe now. Mm. They can't compete. I mean, we, we look at clubs like Aston Villa and say, you know, how sad it is that Aston Villa 
European champions in the 80s can no longer compete at the top end of the Premier League. Well, they're surviving and they're doing okay, but for absolutely tons of clubs in Europe, they no longer can even dream about competing in European competition. And these are clubs that were playing in the semi-finals and finals of things like the UEFA Cup and the European Cup as recently as the 80s. Simon, appreciate your uh, appreciate your call. We'll, we'll bring you back on the show. Maybe we can have a fuller discussion about this uh, at a later time. Oh, All right, no, it was very interesting. Thanks Cheers. a lot. There goes Simon Evans. Uh, go follow him on Twitter, SG Evans, fantastic uh, soccer writer, writing at World Soccer Talk these days. Eddie from Brooklyn's on the line. What's up, Eddie? Hey, what's up, Jason? You know why uh, Americans don't care about TTO? About what? About TTO. Well, okay. Because you guys seem to have this tendency to have the same conversations instead of watching the actual game. Then we are again talking about what other people feel about Major League Soccer or American Soccer. Who cares? You guys have your league. It's working. You're watching it. Oh, I don't, I don't care. Wait, who, wait, who, 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 are we, who are we saying, who are we worried about this time, Eddie? Who, who is, who's the... This article. Oh. No, it, look, I mean, it, I think it's important to talk about the ideas of the economics behind MLS because, look, there are plenty of people out there who support this league every day who want to see it climb the ladder and be one of the best leagues in the world. Me, I don't care. I just want it to exist. I just want these teams to be out there playing. That's why I worry about a player strike, Eddie. I just want to be able to see some soccer. No, but then it turns into, well, it's major, it's minor, and how it compares to the other leagues in the world. It's just, can we actually talk about, you know, soccer? Let's let's just all relax and be more like Eddie. Got, no, because I got bone to pick with you. Oh, here we go. All right, come on, bring all it. Because right. you start in the headline, uh, America demolishes a piece of three nothing, and I kind of take I kind of take a a bit of heat with that because. All right, the first yeah. ha- look, the first half, Eddie. The first half, the priests looked good, but they did not take their chances. So when you lose, th- when you lose three nothing, and you you crumble down the last quarter hour of that game, you crumble like Saprista did. I'm gonna call it a demolish, especially can I, considering. Can I, can I explain what happened though? Can I explain what happened? Uh, uh, from, yeah, but this I is the game. I this is the game gonna, I, I know Eddie. Eddie is Eddie's working in soccer, analyzing games. I'm, I'm gonna defer to you, Eddie. But let me just say, you lose three nothing at home. I don't care how well you played. That's not good. All right. Well, let me break it down. First of all, by the 60th minute, it should have been 3-1 Saprissa because Golinvich, they, they, he, they should have finished their chance should like, have, right off the bat at halftime, went wide. Rodriguez hit the post. He had a shot saved. So it probably should have been 3-1 going into the 60th minute. But what happened was injury. All right? A lot of people don't realize that. Machado went out at halftime, and that forced, um, that forced uh, one of our midfielders to go back into the sweeper role. And then the big injury was Sebastian uh, Diana, who went down in about the 73rd minute. Now, uh, Joaquin Campos decided for some ungodly reason to bring on Minor Escoet. Now, let me try and put this in context so people understand. Imagine that Alberto Moreno goes down for Liverpool, mm-hmm. and Brendan Rodgers decides to bring on Daniel Sturridge in his place and move Raheem Sterling out to left wing back. That's basically what happened, because once – once uh, Minor Escalette came in, that pushed David Vega over to left wing back, and he's, he's a secondary striker or a center forward at best. He has no business being a left wing back. So what happens is it opened up entirely too much space for America, and within a span of six minutes, it went from nothing-nothing and us probably being the better team on the pitch to 3 nothing. So, I mean, demolish, that's a bit of an overstatement. I never gave Safisa a chance to win this time, okay. and I kind of questioned Campos' tactics bringing right. in Escalade regardless of, of Diana's injury right. because a, a nothing-nothing score Eddie, back to a second still good Eddie, enough. Eddie, you're, you're right. And look, they're in major trouble now. It's probably not going to go well. 
regardless of how it happened, and, and you put it on the coach, whatever. Some of that sounds like excuses. It's fine. I get it. Sometimes we, we look and, and we see one or two things snowball and, and become a problem, and the next thing you know, it's 3 nothing. It's also the fact that Club America can bring Aribe Peralta off the bench. <laughs> I mean, that's well, I understand that, but I, I still think even if they would came on, if, if Sebastian Diano would have been on there, there was no space uh, going down that left side. All right. so what I'm saying is Campos' tactics, Campos got it wrong. It's not an excuse. I'm putting blame on Campos. I'm not trying to make an excuse for Caprice. Okay, I'm but... Trying to put the, I'm trying to make somebody uh, being held accountable. You are arguing semantics with me. <laughs> I mean, come on. No, no, no. It's a, it's, it obviously was not a good performance for Sampresa. And as I said, regardless of whether, whether or not there was going to be 3 nothing, one nothing, whatever, you would still have Club America as the favorites to win this tournament at the beginning of, of this round. Now it's even, it's even stronger a possibility. Um, you know, I'm not, Pachuca's going to get by Montreal, but you're not going to have, I just don't see Pachuca being the, the dominant team. It's going to be Club America. They're coming off. No, yeah, every, yeah. Everybody knew that. Once once Club America advanced, everybody knew it was Club America's tournament. I just don't understand why Saprisa didn't at least hold for nothing, nothing. And you never know what would have happened to the Azteca. You know, Mexico went down. That's very true. Eddie from Brooklyn, appreciate the phone call, man. It's been a while. Don't be a star. I hear you. I, wait, I hear you're spreading out. You're spreading your wings. You're all over the place. I get, I get word you're doing other shows and stuff, man. A little bit. I'm, I might have done a little stuff for extra time radio, but that's neither here nor there. All right. Well, that's all right. I, I, I'm not. I'm not upset, Eddie. I just, you know, you got to <laughs> check in with me every now and then. You know, you know how that I, goes. I'll, I'll be sure to do that. All right, Eddie from Brooklyn. Thanks a lot for the call, man. There you go. Uh, just a couple more minutes here. Two, two or three more minutes. If you want to jump in, three four seven seven five six six two seven six. I keep meaning to make some time for this. I haven't had a chance to. Uh, New York City FC. And, and if I'm missing any of the details from this story, somebody tell me because this is weird. This is broken on Twitter the last couple of days. Apparently, there's a supporters group for NYCFC called the Hearts of Oak, which I actually kind of dig. I don't know what the hell it means, but Hearts of Oak, I dig it. But there's this list of things that have come out, requirements for people who want to join this supporters group that boggles the mind. I don't understand it. Every incoming member must be sponsored by an active current member. Every incoming member has to provide three references none of which can be the sponsoring member. We will have you fill out a short questionnaire with two important questions. I, I don't... What is this? Is this a job? You're not going to the stadium. I, I don't understand what's happening here. Look, I understand you guys want to keep out the riffraff, Hearts of Oak, but this is ridiculous. I don't understand what's happening here. Yeah, you better have... You better be... Oh, wait, their, their TIFO game can't even be on point. Are they allowed to have TIFOs? Probably not even allowed to have TIFOs, right? Better have good T-shirts. <laughs> better, have, better have really good T-shirts. Better, better, <laughs> better have everything. They're be the best possible beer, right? Do they, are they going to be able to tailgate up at uh, Yankee Stadium? Is that something they can even do? We, we, we tailgate in the U.S. Do we get to tailgate at Yankee Stadium? I don't even know. I feel like that's probably not going to be allowed. Everything else is banned. So it's not even like they can serve the best beer. They may have like what viewing parties when the team's out of town. Maybe they'll have, you know, pregame activities at a pub or something. It better be like free best beer possible. Better be. For for all of the stuff you have to go through to get in. I I joined a fraternity. I'm not saying it was a, the right thing. Although I got some really good friends. I joined a fraternity and it seemed less strenuous than this. That was a long time ago. I was a young man. Dark days. All right, that's going to do it for Soccer Morning on a Thursday. Thank you very much. 
Again, to Andres Cordero from BN Sport. Go check out his work there. Follow him on Twitter, at Dre Cordero. And Stefan Zemanski, doctor, economics professor, the University of Michigan, talking about the future of MLS under the current economic model. Look, again, as compared to the rest of the world, it's not that MLS's model is bad per se. It's that it's not going to get it to, comp- to, to the point where it can compete with Spain and Italy and France and Germany and England. It's just not going to get there. Maybe we can uh, have Stefan back in the near future to talk some about, about some more of those elements. Make sure you go to 3NailFC.com to buy a t-shirt. Backheel.com slash store to buy a mug. Bunch of mugs out there. Love the mugs in the wild. Go to WorldSoccerTalk.com to get this show, the work of Simon Evans, the work of Steve Davis. Fantastic stuff happening over there as well. We'll talk to you guys tomorrow. Big Friday episode coming up. Bye. Bye.